0: Great investors have a similar mindset, right? When people think about Buffett and Munger, for instance, they didn't tell the CFO what to do. They would hire the right people and let them run their own race. You have to trust them to a degree. Instances where I've seen things break down are where the senior marketing people are not trusted and they are just given metrics to target. When there are things like attribution that are not considered or the other aspects of performance of these campaigns that are not properly considered. You end up putting a box around the marketer or the marketing group. CFOs can go wrong in my opinion. I've managed like $4 billion of ads. We've worked with hundreds and hundreds of different companies. If you think about the marketing spend as the like investment currency, like we invest in different channels and it's up to us to report on success subject to these conversations that we have, which have to be really high-quality conversations with a finance team or the VP that we report to or a CMO that we report to.
1: Is this thing on?
0: Yesterday's
1: price is not today's price. Why, thank you, Fat Joe. Welcome to Run the Numbers, where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the VCs who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the world of finance, strategy, and ops. Today, my guest is Jonathan Becker, a legend in the world of performance marketing. Jonathan and his team at Thrive Digital have planned, built, and executed more than $4 billion in paid acquisition budgets for companies like Uber, Asana, Square masterclass coinbase charity water and many more we dissect marketing budgets from the lens of a cfo and go deep on roi marketing unit economics funding experiments analyzing attribution by channel and one of my favorite topics ltv to cac jonathan also gives us some cool stories about companies who have scaled on the backs of just one or two marketing channels like expedia and we also riff on the concept of super expensive super bowl ads this is a master class in how finance and marketing can team up to use paid growth as a lever for expansion. All of this and much, much more after a short word from our sponsors. Well, you know what I always say, maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. <laughs> I'm there right now. But there is a solution and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using Theropass' compliance and audit solution. ThoroughPass is the only solution using AI infused technology and in-house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with ThoroughPass. From onboarding with dedicated experts to audits from in-house auditors, who know every aspect of your framework needs, you can have complete confidence in your ThoroughPass compliance journey. Theropass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to high trust and SOC2 to ISO 27001. Woo! If you need PCI, DSS, pen tests, or any other major compliance framework, Theropass can hook you up. With Theropass, you never need to worry again. Relax. We fix audits. Find more at theropass.com. That's T-H-O-R-O-P-A-S-S dot com. Tell me, boy CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. Welcome back to the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm here with Jonathan Becker of Thrive Digital, a man who perhaps has spent more of your marketing dollars than anyone else in the world. Jonathan, thanks for joining.
0: (laughs) Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: So Jonathan, I want to start out with maybe something that's a bit of a joke or a myth of lore in Silicon Valley. And that's that 80% Eighty percent of venture funding dollars ultimately flow to Google. Is is there any truth in that statement?
0: Um, I've heard that too. It's kind of this funny concept that just basically says Google is a money making machine. You know, when I think about it, I don't know about venture funding dollars, but Alphabet itself made like three hundred billion dollars last year in in total revenue. Um, you got to think about that not only as ads, but also cloud. You know, the Play Store and devices and if the question is, you know, does a modern startup or even a you know scaled uh, institutional type business spend a lot of money on what Google has to offer? I have to imagine yes. Uh, but it's not just startups. I think there was like
1: 345
0: billion dollars in venture financing in 2023, something like that. The numbers certainly fit together to support what you're saying, but I think it, that ignores like a huge part of the industry, which is like your Fortune 500 companies that also invest heavily in this stuff. So does Google make a lot of money? Yes. And is most of it on ads, which is probably what we'll end up talking about today. Definitely.
1: So I reached out to you and I sent you an email like, listen, I'm a startup CFO. You run a company that helps other tech companies basically spend their money in a better way to get results on their paid marketing, which I believe is called performance marketing. And I'm always staring at PL's wondering what are we spending all these marketing dollars on and are we getting an ROI? And some of the terms that are thrown around at me from the CMO seat are you know this is for brand marketing, this is for performance marketing. Can you just kind of describe for the finance and strategy dorks out there? Maybe too afraid to ask the question what's the difference between brand marketing and performance marketing is is brand marketing just like we don't know what the return is is that what they're saying
0: there used to be no distinction between brand marketing and performance marketing because you know 20 years ago performance marketing didn't really exist so in the age of you know channels arising where the idea is that things are heavily heavily measurable there's this like group of advertising opportunities that start to get labeled as performance marketing The real difference, you know, in 2024 between the two is that brand marketing, if I'm a brand marketer, I'm essentially presupposing who my customer is. And when I buy media, I am kind of anticipating or guesstimating where that supposed, you know, marketing persona will spend time online or offline. So my, you know, it's Harry or CJ and they're, you know, between this age and this age, and they live in the Pacific Northwest. And so they're going to watch, uh, this television show because people from in that demographic watch that television show. So we're going to place our ads there. So they presuppose who their customer is. In performance marketing, it's a little bit different. We kind of cast a net through targeting conditions and then learn who the customer was afterwards. I have no bias as to who will buy a product or service ahead of time. I'm just saying, so long as they conform to these criteria or these conditions, I'm happy to get their conversion. And so that's the real difference between, you know, brand marketing and performance marketing in terms of things being measurable, which was kind of the second part of your question. I'll talk about this maybe a little bit more, but these days, a lot of things that used to not be considered performance marketing can be considered performance channels if they are managed properly. And that has everything to do with measurement and how you set up tests and all of that. So I would say, you know, to CFOs, the... The general idea is that back in the day, brand marketing, so to speak, was maybe a little bit less technical, a little bit less focused on the actual measurement component. These days, maybe that's not so much the case.
1: So to make it a a little more real, we have sponsors for this podcast, which is catering towards an audience of of CFOs and the like. What was that? Is that brand marketing then?
0: Most podcast inventory is bought uh, in a brand marketing, like top of funnel. We would call it in performance marketing context. Um, doesn't mean that the people who are buying these placements don't care about the ROI though.
1: Got it. That That's super helpful. And you'd brought up the term ROI, a term that some marketers cringe from because they don't know the answer when it comes to attribution and others love to hear it because they've got all their data right. And it's... A question that a lot of CFOs are asking these days, what does good look like in terms of a return on investment when you look at a media budget? What what should we hold the CMO accountable for?
0: Right. So, you know, generally speaking when people hire Thrive, my my performance marketing agency, the expectation is that we're getting them a 2 to 4 ROAS on average. That is kind of on a monthly measured cadence. So, if I was to spend hundred dollars today, the idea is that you get three, four hundred, anywhere between two and three or four hundred dollars back. That's measurable, hopefully, in the same month. It's it's not really that simple. I think there's nuance here between whether you have an ecom project and there's a really quick payback. Someone pays you for a consumer item, and you make all the revenue immediately post transaction or whether it is like a lead generation project where just by definition, typically B2C or B2B have a longer period between let's say a click of an ad and then someone actually making a purchase decision around buying a service. So there's things we can do in between to net that out. But essentially, that's kind of the types of returns and timelines that people generally think about.
1: I was listening to another podcast you were on preparing for this one and you had made a joke that the best investors in the world are supposed to get 8% or 10% a year ROI, but you're stuck trying to get people two to four. <laughs> two to four, 100%. Two to four X, two to four X. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I was saying that it's it's true, right? Any other form of dollars being invested, you're a hero if you get like 6% or 8% compounded annually. If you can do that you know, year in, year out, um, you are a legend in investing because of compounding. But in marketing, and this you know goes into a lot of different aspects of marketing, I think people are a little bit short-sighted. So it's seen less as an investment, although I see it as an investment, and more of just like an expenditure and uh, transactional expenditure where the idea is, hey, we spent this much, what did we get? And I want to know today. And so people's expectations around this are very different. But I would argue that, you know, setting up a marketing function within an organization, uh, investing in roles and team members, and then ultimately like judging performance, uh, is not dissimilar to investing. Just the expectations are.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And there is though a kind of a law of diminishing returns though in marketing. Right. If I'm working with a company like yours, should I expect it to get tougher over time to keep acquiring those customers or. Does it get easier because people now know who I am? So
0: both, I would say. So the brand marketing component and like the performance marketing top of funnel component, let's call it, uh, as a company gets more famous, people are more easily able to recognize, you know, a particular brand in an ad and essentially trust that ad in terms of the product or service that it's selling. So that's kind of one component. The problem is, despite the fact that there's like hundreds of millions or billions of people collectively in particular audiences that we might be targeting, there's only so many people in a particular audience. And so if you just want to think about it as, hey, can I scale the amount of water consumed by humans in the U.S. infinitely? No, you can't, because there's only so many people that drink water every day. And there's going to be a point where, you know, the more water you give to people, not the more, not necessarily the amount of more water people drink. And so ads are kind of the same as that. This obviously there's like a whole bunch of things that, you know, roll up into this question, but yes, there are diminishing rates of return, sometimes strong diminishing rates of return by channel, by tactic, as we scale. Um, for that reason, channel exploration. So the discovery of new places to invest advertising dollars and kind of, you know, market into them uh, is really important. We don't want to be entirely reliant on one, you know, type of ad buying uh, for that reason. And so when you think about scaling, there might be certain finite groups of people in particular audiences that you go after, but the idea is Are there new audiences we can go after and are those, you know, represented differently by different channels? So if you think about what you can achieve on Google versus what you can achieve on like Instagram or Facebook proper within the meta ecosystem or on TikTok, people already know intuitively that there's kind of like different demographics of people that tend to spend time on all of these different places and it's not unlimited, so we have to figure out all of those things simultaneously as ad buyers.
1: That's a, that's a hard nut to crack because you're simultaneously trying to think what's the TAM like, or I guess it would be the serviceable addressable market of of people I can go after. And then you're also trying to flex that against the channels and, and how much to plow into it. It is a, it is kind of a multi-variable equation.
0: It is, except the way to win at that is to not think about all the problems simultaneously and just start somewhere and start to build.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR. The real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargify combined to become Maxio, the only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose-built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and revrec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor-grade reporting packages. Visit maxio.com slash runthenumbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the Run the Numbers link and receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's maxio.com forward slash run the numbers.
0: Most companies are not trying to boil the ocean with what they're doing, right? And and in most industries, a company starting out, even if they're first, it's not a winner-takes-all equation. So you don't need all the customers, you don't need all the money, um, and ads don't have to work perfectly for you to be successful. Generally, what we see is people come to us because it's kind of working or it's like maybe they think it can work and it's not working super well or they haven't tried it yet and they want to start somewhere. And so, yes, if I look at our most scaled projects where we're spending, you know, $10 million a month and it took us several years to get there, it's complex. I have 25 people working on it. Um, There's a whole team client side working on it. There's all kinds of testing and validation and attribution and reporting in place. And it's super sophisticated, but it takes time to get there. And certainly not all projects are at that stage. So I would just say that it's not something to be intimidated by. It's like good problems to have. if If you start to think about the world like that because of a need or a capability, it probably means you're doing some of the right things.
1: And do you think the economics of ad spend change from a B2B company versus a B2C company? Totally.
0: So I think that, you know, B2B and B2C both fall into the lead generation category of marketing. And really the expectations of return have to do with like time. Um, So budget is obviously a factor, but in an enterprise B2B lead gen scenario, the payback periods can be quite lengthy. We've worked with companies where it takes them twelve months to close a deal. Um, that's B two B enterprise. That's not that crazy, actually. Like sometimes it's six to twelve months on the B two B enterprise side. B two C, where it's you know business to consumer, and it's still a lead gen uh, style of project. Typically, the payback periods are just smaller, shorter. So it's still lead gen, and the types of things you need for B two B are similar to what you need for B2C, but the payback period might be like 30 to 90 days, let's call it. So those are generalizations, but I'm just using them to illustrate like the expectations that you might have around um, the different styles of lead generation, I suppose.
1: I love how you're framing it up in terms of CAC payback period. That That's such a good lens to look at it through.
0: Yeah, I actually think about it as... So CAC and LTV have this interesting relationship, right? Every metric is a little bit subjective. And so when you're determining what the goalposts are for success within a particular company, you have to take a pretty good look at what you're aiming at in terms of what success looks like. And that has to do with, you know, whether you're growth focused, whether you're profitability focused, um, the cost for acquiring a customer is, or CPA in certain instances, people call it that, um, is one metric to determine, you know, the economics or the marketing economics of a performance marketing or growth marketing channel. But also, you know, it, that doesn't really matter if you don't have a sense of lifetime value. And in mm-hmm. fact, for most companies, lifetime value is this like fake number that they assume will be the case. Sometimes it's well vetted, sometimes it's not, but this is a really important like. CFO level type question, potentially, Uh, they have a sense of what LTV is, or sometimes it's actually just more aspirational. We think we hope LTV will be this. And so it's fine for us to, you know, set a threshold for the cost of acquiring a customer type thing. The reality is, you know, you're running a business. And these days, I'm happy to say that, you know, being profitable seems to be fashionable. Again, you just have to spend less, you have to earn more than you spend. (laughs) Basically, it's quite simple. And so, However, that is reflected within the metrics that drive these types of campaigns forward is actually fine as long as uh, you're reasonable in terms of the metrics that you're thinking about. And then there's some like testing and validation, you know, plan in place so that you don't just assume that performance is what it is or trust a particular number only later to learn that it's not actually working as well as you thought.
1: I would love to nerd out on metrics with you for a second. What are some of the other metrics you usually communicate to a CMO or even a CFO just to update them on the signals that are coming from a campaign they're running?
0: Yeah, it's such a great question. So there are like a ton of different metrics out there. Some of them are really basic, like, you know, cost per click or cost per, you know, thousand impressions or time on page time on site. So these are the classic Google Analytics, you know, a bygone era type metrics that most people ignore, but we see as like these like micro conversions, if you will, that indicate collectively whether someone on your website is a quality visitor or not. And so like, do they index really highly on those little micro conversions uh, and give us a sense of whether, you know, from a latent point of view, there'll be a high quality lead, if you will, for us to continue targeting type thing. So that's kind of one bucket of metrics, the other bucket that's a little bit more obvious is is similar to what we've just talked about. So concepts like you know cost per acquired customer CPA, cost again CAC is another way of essentially saying that ROAS, uh, return on amount spent. That's what that means. Uh, is very fashionable. MER is something that we're hearing more and more, and and is starting to be kind of included within our campaigns. That's marketing efficiency ratio, and so. You know, I won't define all of these, you can Google them, but essentially these metrics change, you know, every few years, just like the technology does. So new capabilities or lack of capabilities, when things actually get worse technologically, because that happens too, apparently, but people are constantly trying to figure out whether there's like a finite metric or some ratio, you know, that ultimately gives them a sense of success over what they're doing. Marketing spend can be, you know, volatile. And so you kind of have to like pick a set of metrics And then see them through for a period of time, but but just curious, but, you know, you obviously have some familiarity with this. Uh, what have you seen work and like, what do you think is the most popular metric that a CFO will often ask you about, or that you're interested in?
1: CAC payback period is the one that always comes to mind for me, but Lifetime value of a customer is important to know if you're a multi-product company and you're layering on additional innovations over time, because it's a lot of times you're almost giving away a product either for, for less than you could charge or it's even free and you're charging someone else in the ecosystem, especially if you're a B2B marketplace. So I look at the whole gamut of metrics here, but at the end of the day, what I'm trying to figure out is what's the total addressable wallet share that I can get from a customer now versus later and how long can I get them to stick around and like you said if I can make that larger than the amount that I'm spending that's just the basic economics of running a company
0: so when I hear a CFO say something like that what you just told me is what is important to your business and then it's kind of my job to tell you what metrics reflect those goals if that makes sense but when I hear someone say, you know, it, profitability is important, I want to grow, but I need to do it, you know, feasibly and make sure that we're spending less than we're earning, then I'm going to say, well, let's use ROAS, you know, at the campaign level, we use MER, so efficiency ratio at the entire marketing mix level. Let's determine what a contribution market margin looks like. Let's factor these things into how we spend and what success looks like. It's a very different conversation.
1: Jonathan, can you speak to MER, the marketing efficiency ratio? That's a a new one to me. I got to learn.
0: So ROAS is really good at determining kind of the ROI of the ad spend itself, but it doesn't take into consideration anything outside of ad spend and revenue. Like the calculation is literally like ad revenue over cost of ads. Whereas I believe MER is total revenue for the entire like department divided by all costs. So it's a more holistic view as to whether the entire program is functioning. Where these things break down by the way is in attribution. So how do you attribute whether the revenue that you're counting in these calculations actually was derived from the channels, you know, or platforms that you're spending money on? And so that's where a lot of this can become subjective. That's actually like a separate part of this conversation, but it's an important theme in what we do in that we're not like omniscient, right? Like we don't know and see everything. And so a lot of what we do just like, you know, actually in finance to a degree has to be subjective. So we can think about, and I'll, we'll get back to your question in a second, but we can think about, you know, ad spend as if you are a finance person doing bookkeeping. If I am a bookkeeper, I'm essentially given all these receipts, right? I have to tally them up. They could be digital. Maybe people are giving me shoeboxes of receipts the old school way, but it's my job to look at those receipts and then essentially attribute which finance expense category they belong to. Attribution and marketing is the same thing. It's different. We use different tools. Nobody hands me a shoebox every day, but essentially one of my jobs in a, as a marketer is to say, you know, we spent this much on this set of ads and it was then attributed to this revenue. So not an expense category, but a revenue by channel type category. The way we get there is complicated and it influences what success looks like. So I would say that like one stage of a CFO asking the right question is, Hey, what metrics are we going to pick? So first you establish your goals, you communicate that to your marketer. The marketer then has to pick or suggest appropriate KPIs based on the goals. Some of those we've talked about today, then we have to make sure that we're attributing and measuring success properly so that the revenue that we declare as being won over by one channel or another is accurate. In other words, like I don't accidentally put everything into one expense category only to realize that it didn't actually come from that expense category. Uh, If that makes sense, that then rolls into how a CFO thinks about budgeting, growing the department, adding more, you know, bandwidth onto a creative team. There's tangential departments that all roll up into this stuff, but essentially it's the same conversation.
1: I love the way you described that the CFO or CEO or whoever's in charge of kind of the overarching PNL can go to the marketing team and say, hey, listen, these are the goals that we have. You pick the weapon in order on how we measure that. I've never heard it teed up that way. And I think it's awesome.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think great investors have a similar mindset, right? When people think about Buffett and Munger, for instance, they didn't tell the CFO what to do, right? They would hire the right people and, and you know, on the assumption that they knew what to do, they'd give them targets and let them run their own race. And so I think that's, you know, fairly common at the C-level where, you know, people are hired with great seniority and you, you have to trust them to a degree. And so I think that instances where I've seen things break down a little bit are where the senior marketing people are not trusted and they are just given metrics to target. So when there are things like attribution that are not considered or the other aspects of performance of these campaigns that are not properly considered. And so you end up putting a box around the marketer or the marketing group. They're artificially constrained by things that may or may not make sense. And so unfortunately, sometimes you see this in public companies where, you know, there are short-term goals to do with like certain revenue targets uh, or whatever, you know, and and they trickle down into these like strange types of targets that you have from like a how many leads we need this month, as opposed to thinking about the quality of the leads that you're getting, stuff like that. Um, so CFOs can go wrong, in my opinion. You know, I've managed like $4 billion of ads. We've worked with hundreds and hundreds of different companies. I'm an investor in the ad space. If you think about me, if you think about the marketing spend as the like investment currency, like we invest in different channels and it's up to us to report on success, subject to these conversations that we have, which have to be really high quality conversations with a finance team or the VP that we report to or a CMO that we report to, but, but yeah, so that's kind of like the philosophy that I've seen work really well and where people get tripped up a little bit.
1: I love how you said that you're essentially a portfolio manager. Cause I always say that to my team too, like, look, I look at my job, like I'm a master resource allocator. I've been given a a number of dollars to go out and spend on people, software, rent, everything else. And it's like, how do you get the best yield out of this? And so you've essentially become a $4 billion portfolio manager in the marketing currency. Exactly,
0: yeah, I totally think about it that way. I think that a lot of things can be thought of that way and I'm absolutely a resource allocator, but it also happens internally at my own business where we have to think about staffing these projects correctly and like all of the different ingredients that a project requires for it to taste right, if that makes sense. And so sometimes there are fractional capabilities that like a really highly specialized, you know, individual on our data science team has Uh, in other cases, it's more general ads management, you know, capability and whatnot. But, um, because we've been running kind of like the McKinsey of ads, you know, for 12, 13 years at this point, we have a really highly distilled, you know, sense of what types of support need to be invested into these projects for them to have the highest likelihood of success. Most companies internally don't tend to have that unless they have like. Almost accidentally hired the right people in certain cases, or they've been running ads so long that they have the same like bench strength and institutional knowledge that uh, that we do, or an agency like us does. Doesn't mean the agencies can't make mistakes, by the way. It's not a perfect science.
1: Yeah, and something I always go back and forth with CMOs on is, hey, what's the right split here between people and programs? And, you know, performance marketing is usually the largest component of that program budget, but it's like, you can't go out and spend money if you don't have people in a spot to go and do that. So it's like, what do you do first? You hire the right people so they can administer the programs, or do you just kind of run a skeleton staff, put a big program budget? But if you think about that, that's not very good resource allocation if you're an investor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of what you're saying is like, you know, how do you begin this? Do you hire and build a team internally? Or do you hire an agency or what's like the nuance there? And believe it or not, I actually hate agencies in general. Like I I never wanted to start an agency. I worked with agencies. I thought they were like these big, dumb, you know, machines that did strange things that didn't make sense. Uh, And in most cases, they can be not very good, funny enough. And so when I think about, you know, agency support it's not right for everyone. I guess my bias creeps in, in that, you know, we've built an excellent, you know, partner here. And so in a lot of cases we can help people solve their problems, but more generally speaking, it doesn't matter whether the resources that you ultimately end up hiring come from an agency or in-house. So long as you understand what you're building and what you need to be successful so again i'll relate this to finance in a in a public company you'll have everything from a cfo to maybe some financial analysts to like an accounting team on the accounting team or some bookkeepers or some capability maybe that's outsourced i don't know there's other things too but but these functions are separate and distinct and yet they make finance work you need all of them in a lot of cases, again, when a C-level team has no prior understanding of, let's call it, you know, digital marketing, performance marketing, growth marketing, whatever you want to call it, or just even marketing, they'll say, yeah, we want to do this. Here are our targets. So they've already established their targets. And we're going to give this department two headcount or one headcount. So they hire a VP. The VP is the equivalent of hiring like a like really senior controller or something like that, when in fact... Like to the example in finance I gave, you still need a bookkeeper, which they don't have. You still need a CFO, maybe, which they don't have. And so you have these like ill-formed departments and they just go and hire agencies because they need more support. In certain cases, they think of the support as just bandwidth. They don't necessarily break it down to the functions that are missing. These days, you know, to run paid acquisition correctly, you need creative resources, ads management resources, data resources, testing resources all kinds of stuff. And so, so I think it's really important to have enough conversations, do enough research where you understand, you know, again, what your goals are, some metrics that might roll up into those goals. And then you build a team that can answer those questions around attribution that can like set up campaigns with tests, you know, ingrained in them, learn things, make things move forward. And you kind of index over all the different functions that you need to, to make the machine run properly. You don't build a car with no wheels type thing. And I see it all the time, all the time.
1: Let's talk a bit about budgeting and running experiments or, or, or budgeting to make sure that car has some wheels. So if you take hundred percent of a marketing program budget, so without the people in there, what percentage is usually dedicated to advertising? Are there any rules of thumb here? Because I have a hard time sometimes finding benchmarks.
0: Yeah, I would argue that when I do see those benchmarks it's more for the like psychological well-being of the people who write the checks on the budget. So it's not like there's some unwritten rule in my industry where it's like 20% must go towards uh towards experimentation. Typically, when we see stuff like that, it comes from the mindset of risk allocation, risk management. Uh someone is afraid that if they spend too much of their budget testing that they won't get the returns that they need to report to the shareholders or, or to make the company function properly. And so testing is when, when a, a performance marketing or growth marketing ad channel is really running properly, everything is a test. A hundred percent of ad spend is a test. Some tests are really small and incremental in nature. And some tests are like game changing, like running a test on a channel you've never run a test on before to prove out whether the channel works and then finding that it does, that's a pretty big and important learning to determine that Google search suddenly works and you've been buying billboards for 20 years type thing. That's a test. Um, you could also say that on like meta or TikTok, you know, down to the creative asset level, does this ad outperform this ad that's a test. And so my point is, you know, generally the body of knowledge that arises from, learnings and insights from the data that we collect becomes part of like the playbook, so to speak, we're always testing into that playbook. So the playbook is only as good as like the last campaign that we run. All the conditions in the world change constantly. And we're always trying to test and then determine what worked and what didn't work. Um, and add the things that work into like our primary campaigns that really, you know, are spending the most, what didn't work is also very important to understand. So, so running tests and failing, if you want to call it, that is a really important part of probably not just performance marketing, but investing and running a business, you know, talk to any entrepreneur and ask them how much they've screwed up. And if they're transparent, it's a lot like, uh, I know that. Cause I started more than one company and. I was the type of person that unfortunately learned by understanding what I did not want through big and small failures along the way, only to then distill out what I did want. So some people, I guess, you know, are visionaries. They can say, I'm going to write this on the wall What I want. I know exactly what I want on day one. And other people kind of learn the hard way about that. But the point is, you know, when we run a test and validate you know whether it the data is you know sound or not whatever it is that we're doing when we when we have an outcome that says this does not work that's a hugely important piece of information and it really contributes to our long-term success even though nobody wants you know a massive failure basically so the idea is you just keep going uh, these things can obviously take time and that's part of it
1: that's something in my personal development as a CFO that I've had to get better at over time. And that's instead of just looking at the numbers of saying this failed, like, why didn't you get us a return on this investment? I've now started to say, good. OK, good job. Like now we know that channel doesn't work. What did we learn? Thank you for for exploring that. Now we can rule it out and try to put it towards something else. And that wasn't even my, in my vocabulary prior a year ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you know, different people have different appetites for success and failure, and they have different senses of what is reasonable within that context. So I would also say that at a certain point, if it's just failure after failure after failure, you know, in 12 months is rolled by, that's a pretty strong signal that either you don't have the right team or this just isn't working for you. Time and money are kind of the two parts of the experimentation. They're the two things, the two levers I think that that govern testing, you know, to your to your earlier question. So You can spend a lot of money and learn a lot more quickly about what, you know, works or doesn't work, or you can have less money and it'll just take a lot more time. And this plays into, you know, channels like meta ads or Google ads or TikTok or programmatic or audio ad units, you know, on podcasts or whatever it is that we been talking about very well and then obviously there's more complexity around the validity of all of this and testing validating whether something actually worked or not but generally speaking it's like a time and money thing
1: because something that i struggle with is how much is enough time am i am i cutting people off too soon or am i letting dollars ride on the table for too long
0: yeah it's a really good question so i think that there's like let's we'll do a little like thought experiment here so most people would understand that you know an experiment can't run in just one day. Um, I can't even probably set it up in a day, but let's pretend that I could. The results wouldn't be very telling after a single day, no matter how much you're spending. Um, similarly, we can probably agree that uh, taking 12 months to run one test to tell you one thing is way too long. And so that means that somewhere between you know the day and the 12 months is a reasonable period for a test to elapse and for us to give it all the supporting conditions that it needs to be a valid test. The, the thing that we run into most often psychologically is actually impatience. And so people want results fast and yet they don't necessarily want to like spend into the unknown where they don't know what the results are going to be. So there's a real, you know, power struggle between. The psychology of impatience and the like practicality of like doing the work setting it up properly in a professional manner that's defensible when when it's looked at, and then running an appropriate test. A lot of times we get stuck in the quarterly grind of things. And so the, the way that marketers can compensate for that is by changing your goalposts for what a test means, run a faster test, come up with a thesis that is more easily provable and rolls up into this other piece of information that you're getting, right? And also coach the stakeholders within the organization. If it's a finance person that's ultimately you know, funding this, which it often is, talk to them about, you know, time versus money and the conditions necessary to, you know, run a test and concepts that we haven't talked about yet, like data sufficiency, all of the AI powered, you know, ad serving algorithms or machine learning capabilities, whatever we want to call them, they require a certain amount of information in order to make great choices as to where your ads show up. Uh, otherwise, they never exit their learning phase. And so these days in the world of like ChatGPT, people kind of understand the concept of these like models, I think they're being called these days. Um, they need a lot of data to have a have to be able to do what they're supposed to do, essentially. And an advertising platform, also built on AI, is literally no different. And in when you do something like set up a test. To validate whether something works or doesn't work if you get a ton of data back really quickly in the form of conversions it might be easier you know to have enough evidence to determine both you know whether the test was valid and then also whether it it worked if you don't you can just run that test for longer but i the, the point that i'm making ultimately is just really that there's a psychological component to this that has nothing to do with the performance and it's like literally like how mature are the stakeholders within the organization and Or is the marketing team also making tests that are taking too long to run uh, type thing? And so there's no like right answer here. It's more that people just have to be aware of the human nature aspect of this, the psychology of impatience, and then the practicality that like a marketing professional, the, you know, the, the things we have to do and operate in order to give you the high quality piece of information that you're looking for.
1: And I think the impatience that you're mentioning, Jonathan, a lot of that comes from a lack of clarity on what the expectations are. Like two, two areas that I've uh, made mistakes in the past working with marketing leaders is I've approved experiments to be run, but I've not been clear at the beginning on the data sufficiency that's required. And I've not been clear about, hey, when's the date we'll know by. So instead, I just get impatient like this. This isn't working. We have to pull the plug. Yeah,
0: exactly. So I think you hit the nail on the head there. You're only guilty of not knowing what you don't know in those situations, and nor should you. You're in finance, right? And so I know that running a successful test early stage is a process of aligning stakeholders, making sure that I'm heard on like the goalposts. Like, why are we doing this? Hopefully, there's foundational alignment there that we've already discussed. And then basically providing a roadmap as to how we're going to get there. And that's inclusive of the testing. And so performance marketers frequently are told that they're not being strategic enough. And that's because honestly, they're reacting to day-to-day data. It's, it takes a lot to manage these platforms in a certain case. The conversations that you're in as a CFO maybe shouldn't be as much about like the tests that we're running and more about like insights that have been learned or, or like disproved, let's call it. Um, And then strategic choices that we're making, where are we going to place our bets? And why are we, why do we want to do that? And what is the ask from finance? And so we often think about this whole process of communication, like at Thrive as, well, we use the analogy of a clock with a, a second hand, a minute hand, and an hour hand. And we say that the second hand, or excuse me, yeah, the second hand of communication is like, the day to day chatter whether it's on slack or someone picks up the phone we're talking we're making you know minor campaign adjustments tweaks uploading ad creative whatever it is the minute hand is kind of like the weekly meeting where we're like you know talking about like the high level results of this and we might be tweaking you know budget or something like that the hour hand is where you start to see more like a quarterly meeting where different stakeholders show up in a conversation and we're not talking about the results of tactics or low level experiments. We're talking about big wins and big losses, what the plan was, what we learned, and what the plan now needs to be. And then we're asking for resource approval, like from finance or um, from HR in terms of headcount or, you know, or, or, or type thing. And so it, when that is done properly, you stop hearing the like, you're not being strategic enough thing. And it also, when it's aligned properly with how the organization functions internally, I find that finance leaders are not panicked about you know what a paid acquisition team is doing because they fully understand why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and how it then rolls up into quarterly planning type thing. And so uh, we see this done really well sometimes and really poorly in most cases i would say and part of what we have to do is unpack this like infrastructure that allows for alignment of goals and communication and proper resource allocation and planning
1: and part of that data sufficiency we were alluding to is having good attribution Can you describe what you look for in attribution from from a good campaign? And then maybe you could also touch on like, has attribution got easier or harder over time?
0: I'll just, yeah, I'll speak to that really quickly. The technology that we use is actually getting worse. And there's going to be like a point where privacy concerns and the competition between, you know, the channels themselves probably lands in a place where there's tools that aren't so like, you know, exposed, I think, to these types of changes. But For now, and rightfully so, a lot of changes have been made because of privacy concerns. That stuff is good for humanity, I think. And then you see like, you know, Apple and Google and Facebook kind of all battling themselves, battling each other, I should say. And, you know, Apple has the iOS, you know, changes that it made where it removed a whole bunch of data that, you know, all the channels could use, and it really hurts Facebook. And Google is sunsetting third-party cookies in Chrome uh, type thing. And so that's going to be a big change and, and whatnot. And so I think that, you know, ultimately when I think about attribution these days, so we came from a place where, you know, Google ads would say, these are the various attribution models that, that are offered, pick, pick one and, you know, targeting will be predicated based on this attribution. That is pretty much deprecated. So we're no longer able to really rely on the channels themselves to tell us, quote, you know, whether it's working. In a modern sense, that is one piece of evidence that we will look at in this like ongoing investigation of the question of what is working and to what extent. And so, sure, I will take, you know, what Google or Facebook or TikTok tells me about attribution as one signal as to like which direction the wind is going, but I'm also going to build a media mix model. So like a linear regression model that allows us to kind of map out what the average you know, if sales looks like and whether there's a spike that was causal in nature to something that we did, we can do things like geo holdout tests. Um, So uh, it's kind of an incrementality study as to whether the baseline of performance was affected by in, in a particular geographic location by something that we did. And so none of these things are perfect though, but now suddenly the toolkit that we're using is significantly broader in terms of, providing pieces of evidence as to whether it is or is not working. So in an example where Google says that, you know, this revenue is fully attributed to the set of Google campaigns that you ran, we don't trust that. So we do an incrementality study in the form of a geo holdout, you know, study across an entire state that then says, yes, there was incremental revenue, you know, based on additional ad spend in this particular geographic region. And then we try and validate that using a media mix model based on a lot of historic data and whether there is suddenly an outlier that we can like time to when we spent, you know, X, Y, Z budget or something like that. If they all say the same thing, I still don't really know whether it's true, but all the evidence points in the right direction. And again, like, you know, in a court case, evidence is presented and there's some sort of judge or jury that has to determine whether, someone is guilty or not, right? And this is based on a number of different principles, but ultimately the evidence that is brought forward. Sometimes it's easier to tell, sometimes it's really difficult to tell in that context. I would argue that this type of business decision, does it work or not, is equally difficult. And so a lot of what we do is this testing, measurement, validation, and attribution of the spend. Now we're pretty good at this. So uh, in a lot of cases, the evidence is quite compelling and strong. But not always, though. And so we do still have these questions and it's not perfect. And certainly uh, we live in a place where because of some of the aforementioned, you know, things that have happened in the world. I think that the technology is actually worse today than it was, let's say, 10 years ago when there was like the Wild West of what we do and no rules.
1: And that, that goes back to my joke at the top of the pod, where I was saying 80% of marketing dollars flow to Google, because uh, eventually people just Google things and then Google takes credit for it. You can't really figure out who who it really was at the end of the day. And because the platforms that we're plowing more money into are actually making it harder for us to see where it comes from, it just kind of all gets into this uh, amorphous blob. Totally agree.
0: Yeah. Um, But your question is bang on, like this is really what you're talking about are kind of the sets of concerns that we see from not only finance teams, but just you know various C-level teams, the marketing groups that we report to themselves. These are the problems that practitioners of what we do are trying to solve.
1: You heard it here first, folks. You know, lack of attribution—good for humanity, bad for your marketing budget. Jonathan, I, I wanna I wanna go over a couple fun ones here towards the end. So. I'm curious if you've heard any cool stories of companies out there that have grown maybe their entire business really around one channel, or maybe they found a a kink in the armor that they just ruthlessly exploited to to grow a company.
0: Yeah. So I can give you a bit, I think I've like talked about some of these examples before I can give you some examples. So I think when people talk about this question, they tend to gravitate towards the flashy like startups that found, you know, a hack and then exploited the hack and, Maybe there's a success story there. Maybe, maybe it wasn't so successful over time. One example of like kind of a company that no one talks about that I think is absolutely fascinating in terms of their approach to digital marketing is actually Expedia. So anyone who is in our industry, there's like this conversation between like branded keywords and non-branded keywords in search. So in other words, like, do you bid on the name of your own company or would you have got those clicks anyway? That is because it's incredibly lucrative potentially to, to do this, to bid on branded keywords. But again, it comes down to an attribution question of like, were people searching for me, like, because I did something different. And if am I essentially double paying, if I like then, you know, place an ad above my own branded keywords and search results. So like, whatever, that's just this big ongoing debate Expedia. Basically being like, you know, an online booking engine for travel, everything really took this whole like strategy and and scaled it when they realized they could use paid search to bid on the branded keywords of essentially every single hotel in the world. So when we think about like top of funnel and bottom of funnel, top of funnel being, you know, targeting a group of people that may or may not be aware of the service or product that you're selling versus bottom of the funnel being, you know, targeting people who are like really ready to purchase and have a high degree of intent they are already seeking you out by name, probably because you're in their mind and they're considering you branded search falls at the very bottom of that funnel. And so what Expedia did is basically say, well, Google, we're going to bid on every single, you know, branded keyword of every single hotel in the world eventually. And essentially that means that they had a higher likelihood at one point of basically getting a conversion for a particular hotel keyword than the hotel itself because of their comparison engine.
1: That's a savage move. They basically hide, they hijacked their traffic. They hijacked
0: all the traffic. Yeah, exactly. But they did it in like this incredibly elegant and efficient way. And I believe I heard that at one point, I don't know if it's still true, but Expedia became the largest advertiser on Google. I think it was like a billion dollars a month that they were spending. That is, I I would have to validate that. And like, I don't think Google publishes this or anything like that, but I'm pretty sure I heard that number, uh, whether it's true today, I don't know, but a billion dollars a month on essentially branded search keywords of hotels. And they were able to drive a massive business out of that. So it's one of the examples where like, maybe, you know, Expedia isn't like an it startup and it's not exactly making headlines and like your friends don't talk about how cool Expedia is, but they really found like the ultimate hack on search on Google search and became probably, you know, the biggest proponent of this methodology in the world for a long, long time. Um, So I think that that's one of the single most interesting things I've ever seen a company do in the history of digital advertising in terms of the scale and success that they achieved. And even to this day, I think Expedia has enormous market share. Uh, in the online travel agent sector. I think another one is probably athletic greens. So I've never worked with athletic greens, but I know a bunch of the folks, you know, on their ads team, super, super talented people that know exactly what they're doing. And again, they kind of like got to this place where suddenly, you know, maybe in 2021, 2022, they were kind of everywhere. So you, we talked about podcasts earlier, you know, they were and and might still be actually an advertiser on like every podcast I seem to listen to.
1: Yeah. I joked that athletic, that athletic greens and eight sleep sponsor every podcast, but mine.
0: Yeah. Also, I can't open TikTok and not see one of their ads in a single session. And they were huge on Facebook and huge on search. And like, they were just literally everywhere. And so, you know, people are, sometimes people are literally, you know, what you were alluding to, like, does this stuff work? And the answer is like, yes, but not the same for everybody. Like sometimes it takes a long time to work and it doesn't really work very well, like I suppose. And in other cases, it it causes like real scale. Suddenly everybody knew what Athletic Greens was after like 10 years of them being in business. This was like a wholesale business predominantly. And they created this massive direct-to-consumer side, DTC, right? And so that was mostly because suddenly you, whether you realized it or not, you had heard of them, and then when eventually they placed an ad in front of you, whether you realized it or not, after the fourth or fifth time that your brand, your brain recalled their, you know, name, you were just more likely to, to buy the product and stuff. And so, you know, part of that was paid acquisition. And then part of it was organic. Like, I think they also were really good at content and um, their customers became, you know, big promoters of what they were doing and of these different things i guess another one you know that comes to mind is probably grammarly grammarly like painted youtube with you know ads for a really long time and i think that drove a ton of their adoption again i'm I'm pretty confident that they were the largest advertiser on youtube globally for a a period of time and so but what did it do it drove it drove considerable awareness of what they are and the problem that they solve And they became a huge company as a result of that. Would I recommend this tactic to everyone? No. Most of the companies that I just mentioned have like very, very strong product market fit. So for them, they were like, this totally works. People love what we do and we just need to scale it. Um, Whereas not every company knows whether if they do that, it will work or not. Also, all of these companies have incredibly sophisticated ad measurement capabilities. So the stuff that I talked about you know, thrive doing uh, for a lot of our clients, they just can do this natively and they have all the capabilities in house.
1: I love these stories because it, it, at a certain level, they kept it stupid, simple. And I joke with my CMO all the time. Like if you prove that we can just go after this one channel maniacally, we're going to, we're going to punch that channel till our hand bleeds like that. We're totally fine with that.
0: I hear that from like literally everyone that I've ever spoken to in finance. We will fund this, you know, as much as we possibly can. You have a blank check as long as it works. And then of course the devil's in the details and we have to prove out whether it can in fact scale and work or not. He's on to us, folks. A lot of the stuff that we've worked on has scaled, but we've also, you know, conclusively proved in a lot of cases that things like don't work, which I think is also
1: really important. Last question. I'm with a marketing guru right now. Super Bowl is coming up. Any idea how much an ad will cost this year?
0: Last year, what was it? $7 million for a 30 second spot.
1: 7 million bucks.
0: Something like that. I think that might've been average. And obviously there's like,
1: like the start of the game's worth more.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's not just like one price, but I won't be surprised if it's in deep in the eight figures this year. And I think that, you know, this is something that again, falls into the whole, like, is it working? Type narrative. It's very difficult to measure the impact of television sometimes, but there's such a captive audience with like certain demographics, you know, in a Super Bowl setting that if you get the creative right, this could be like the biggest opportunity for you to, you know, launch a particular project ever type thing. And so, so I think that, you know, it comes down to getting the right spot. Obviously, there's a, probably a negotiation there. And then the creative, as you know, is everything. People like rank like the funniest Super Bowl ads, and it, it feels like funny really works in a Super Bowl context. So if you can figure out how to crack that
1: nut, it works. Do you have a favorite Super Bowl ad from from all the years?
0: <laughs> You're speaking to someone who has seen like an unhealthy amount of ads over the years. Some of them are like really effective and some of them are less effective. Honestly, not really. I don't have like one specific one that really makes it for me. I think though that ultimately it's a good like microcosm or macrocosm of of like the the creative question when it comes to what we do. It's obvious that a really hilarious ad during the Super Bowl just sells and, and really works. That's a really good like analog, I guess, for just all content and ads in general. Like if it fits the audience properly and gives them what they're expecting to see or surprises them, uh, it'll make the impact that you want. If it's really dull and boring and like, no one cares, no one's gonna do anything. Creative's super important.
1: Yeah, I end up like not even paying attention to the ad because the whole time, like as a finance guy, I'm like, have to sell 6.5 million bags of Doritos just to pay for this ad, so.
0: See, that's the finance mindset again, whereas I see it as an investment that pays off for years to come, right? So, but actually that's a really good, Example of this, this problem, like a real seasoned marketer is going to be like, okay, like, when I spend $7 million during the Super Bowl, my message is going to get out to a whole bunch of people about whatever it is that I'm selling. And if I do a good job of the creative, it's going to stick for a while, right? Whereas a finance person might be like, "What was our same store sales that day, or something like that?"
1: Yeah, that, that's what I would ask them to look at.
0: And so the question then becomes, how do you measure the impact of a top of funnel Super Bowl ad? And we would be able to plan a whole methodology around how to how to do that. Essentially, I think like you know to cap it off, everything can be performance marketing if it is run properly. Whereas like we used to just think of these like pay-per-click and programmatic media buying channels, like Meta and Google as like performance marketing these days, because the technology to measure has actually got worse, there are like higher quality tools outside of that. And we can set up infrastructure and methodologies to give really quality evidence and answer the question of, is it working? So, you know, we're going to start doing... Uh, this around like radio buying, and we've already done a lot of that testing to validate or invalidate different types of programmatic out of home, probably eventually TV, all of this stuff. And so I can't wait to do that, because we're so well positioned us as thrive, and then also probably just generally the industry to start to prove to you that there's long term value in investing in these areas.
1: Jonathan, thank you so much for making me smarter on marketing You're one of the best in the business. Where, where can people find you if they want more?
0: Oh, thanks so much. So I'm on LinkedIn under Jonathan Becker, Twitter, JZ Becker, and you can always find me at thrivedigital.com.
1: Love it. Thanks for joining me, man. Thanks,
0: CJ. Great to talk to you.
1: Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing, yelling an in intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.